Uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Sam. Uh, I work here. Um, if you're here for an ENT <coughs> conference or a dental workshop or something charitable at the end, um, uh, you've come to the most interesting event in the building today. Um, and even with all that going on, we could still only get the largest, grandest setting. I mean, appropriate given the caliber of our speakers, but I do, uh, I would hope that we'll have a little bit more of a sort of intimate, relaxed feel than these premises give um, uh, the impression. Um, this workshop is the climax of a program around models uh, that we've been hosting here. It includes an exhibition upstairs in the little temporary exhibition space at the back of the Hunterian. It includes a catalogue that will come later. It's included some other events, but this is the, the pinnacle of what we're doing not least because the rest of the program has been very, very self-indulgently narrow on surgical models after 1945. Um, and only here could we get away with a program that narrow. Um, but what we want to do today is to start from there and go broader, go deeper into time and go much uh, broader into other sorts of scientific and medical models. Um, so we're very excited to welcome you all here. We're very excited to welcome the lineup of speakers. In terms of housekeeping, the fire escape is that and at the back or at the front. And we gather just across the road in, um, uh, on Lincoln's and Fields. If you have any questions, um, Haley is actually the, the brains behind the old, whole operation. But uh, Bruce here, who will wave, um, is... Uh, uh, the curator here, and Susan is our deputy chair. So if you have any questions about uh, logistics, I'm sure you know, we'd be happy to help, wouldn't we? Um, lunch will be in the room. You just had tea and coffee in the committee rooms. We've got a good long break so that you can A, grab some high-quality RCS sandwiches, B, go upstairs to the Clisp and have a look at the uh, exhibition. It's quite a small space. So if you stagger yourselves, we won't all fit in there at once. Um, and see from 1.30 onwards, if you go to the McRae Gallery in the Hunterian Museum, it's all very close together, we can just point you to it, um, there'll be enormously fun um, opportunity to look at um, some hands-on work around medical modeling that Claire and Eleanor have very kindly brought along some bits and bobs to show. So that, I think, is a real USP of this meeting. I'm very excited. So that'll be in the McRae Gallery from 1.30. But again, not a sort of solid block. Just come and go as you please. Grab some lunch, go see the exhibition, have a wander around. Uh, coffee in the afternoon will be in that same space. Um, you have in your packs, I think, two evaluation mechanisms, one for the event and one for the exhibition. Um, I'll be gathering the preliminary data for the board reporting on this whole program on Monday. So if you could think very carefully before you eloquently give us glowing reviews, I can then utterly anonymously, or well, it doesn't have to be anonymous, in fact, just tell us who you are and how wonderful uh, we are, um, and I can compile that and give it to the trustees. Um, the <coughs> deputy chair, I hope, will forgive. I'm not guiding this at all. Um, uh, and you'll notice that the wonderful little postcard, which is the evaluation from the exhibition, is rather wonderful. There are more of those in the, in the gallery space. So if you want to take one away, you can fill one in and then take one away. We, one lesson learned is that if you make your evaluation mechanisms really pretty, 
you don't get any evaluation because people just wander off with them. Um, I would also warmly encourage you to have a look at the catalogue and volume that goes with the exhibition and the programme. To you today, five pounds off. <laughs> Admittedly, it's to anyone who visits the exhibition whilst it's on, it's five pounds off. But to you in particular, five pounds off. And it's wonderful. And we warmly encourage you to take one away with you today. Um, and finally, uh, I'll be doing a little bit of wrap-up at the end. That'll be very light touch. I've had a sneaky peek at some of the presentations, and they are just stunning. But I think we should have a vote for the prettiest picture. So not only will you be stimulated by the content of what you do, but keep your eye on the, on the pictures and make a little note of the one you, ones you think are, are, are the most stunning. And um, we'll have a, little, uh, have a little conversation at the end about who's got the, the prettiest slide. So no pressure, speakers. Um, so, uh, without any more from me, our first speaker um, is Dr. Elizabeth Hallam, uh, who, uh, whose work is very widely used and respected and enjoyed, despite her topic of interest, broadly speaking, being the anthropology of death, would you say? So, um, uh, she manages to make it quite lively um, and interesting, um, and has done so uh, at her various affiliations in Aberdeen, in Oxford, and in Melbourne. <coughs> Um, she's got a long-standing interest um, in the collection here and indeed was guest curator of the Designing Bodies exhibition and editor of the volume. Uh, amongst her um, other work, um, she's uh, been working uh, for some time on uh, a rather wonderful volume called Anatomy Museum, which will be out with reaction in June. So look out for Anatomy Museum in June. Um, but today, she's going to talk to us about bodies, materials, and techniques. Liz. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sam. And uh, thank you, Hayley Kruger, as well, for putting together such an exciting uh, program, which you know is going to be, I'm really looking forward to today's uh, discussions and uh, explorations. Um, let me just check that I can work this machine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my talk is based on the exhibition Designing Bodies uh, that I've guest curated uh, here uh, at the Royal College of Surgeons. And I thought what I'll do here is kind of talk for maybe 45 minutes. I've got lots of pictures, so to keep you kind of... Uh, entertained hopefully, but I'll speak for maybe about 50, uh, 45 minutes and then we can hopefully have some questions uh, at the end. So one of the main aims of the display of Designing Bodies, the exhibition, was uh, to explore aspects of design uh, as they play out in practices of 3D model making. That is the making of models for teaching anatomy and for surgical training. <clears throat> so design, aspects of design often remain invisible within the medical world, but the medical world is actually full of design issues and design practices. And what I wanted to do was to explore design in this territory of anatomical modelling and surgical training. Um, and what I found through the research and the, 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 the privilege of curating the exhibition, which has been a fantastic ex experience, what I found was that um, design designing 3D models in this context uh, involved three main aspects. And these three aspects are the ones that I've tried to sort of 
uh, bring out in the exhibition, so it'll be interesting to hear responses to whether these themes actually come through from the viewer's point of view. So uh, the first one, the first main issue is that um, design involves a lot of exploratory work with materials, with lots of different kinds of materials, so embodied interactions with uh, materials is kind of central to design uh, at work. And the second issue that I wanted to explore was that design in this context involves lots of experimental work to develop technique, techniques of making and refining models. And then all of this, both exploration of materials and the um, development of technique, is of course a very social process. It's a collaborative process. And I'm interested in that from the point of view of an anthropologist who kind of looks at social relationships and cultural practices. So uh, when we're thinking about design, I, I was thinking really how do you get at the social dimensions of this and the kind of collaborative, interactive practices that give rise to certain kinds of designs. Um, so my position really through the exhibition was that these um, makers of models are not lone inventors, but really practitioners who work in a community uh, of, of uh, collaborators uh, to develop um, shared, uh, certain kinds of shared design. So um, designing bodies features uh, three sets of models uh, all of them held in the Royal College of Surgeons collection um, and also some of them currently developed here on site uh, and, and still ongoing in development. And I'm going to look at each of these sets in turn to draw out um, some of the main features in terms of these three main elements, bodies, materials and techniques. So what I've done here is to kind of follow the structure of the exhibition as we put it in place in terms of the headings, the kind of text panels uh, in the exhibition. They're the ones that I'm following here in this talk. So hopefully you'll see some of those um, headings and themes when you visit the gallery uh, later on. So first of all then, um, designing vessels. The first set of models is closely uh, associated with the work of David Hughes Thompson during his 30-year appointment as pro-sector at the Royal College of Surgeons from 1945, post-war onwards, um, where he prepared and dissected human and animal bodies for uh, anatomy teaching. And Thompson uh, used newly available synthetic polyester resins, cold-setting cold polyester resins, uh, to develop his... Uh, to develop his models, and he created what is perhaps the world's best and probably the largest collection of corrosion cast vessels uh, in the world. So, um, you know, he, he, he devoted years to this practice, absolute years, which kind of pushed him to the, to the verge of insanity, I, I, I'm sure, in, in, in some ways. Um, so he cast tubes and cavities in the body that uh, carry vital fluids and air through the body. So he's very much interested in vessels, in tubes and airways. And he was very excited about uh, uh, these new materials, these synthetic uh, resins. And Thompson recognized that these materials made it possible to 
uh, quote, produce beautiful, rigid, coloured casts of many comparatively large, uh, uh, of any comparatively large anatomical cavity. So motivated by these possibilities, Thompson uh, produced corrosion casts that were designed to expose the anatomy of the often complex vessels and to expose the many bodily tubes, channels, and cavities. It was difficult, uh, we should note, if not impossible, to make these vessels visible through other, other modes of display, such as the dissection of, dis of deceased bodies. So students dissecting wouldn't be able to see these vessels in the same way that Thompson could display them through this kind of casting. And unlike parts of bodies preserved as specimens for medical study, resin casts would last indefinitely without deterioration. So this notion of preserving these vessels intact in vivid colour was very attractive uh, to Thompson at the time when he was developing these. So corrosion casting of vessels began with a human body part, an organ or a limb, which Thompson had access to in the anatomy department uh, here at the Royal College of Surgeons. I'm looking into the sources of these bodies uh, currently, and that's something that's, um, again, kind of an issue of research that I'm interested in. Uh, though, although the bulk of uh, Thompson's work was on uh, human anatomy, he also cast organs from animals, including brains, hearts, and lungs. These are the lungs of uh, a dog. He also cast cats, horses, uh, so that uh, students could develop their sense of comparative anatomy, the anatomy, com comparing an anatomy across different species. So what was his technique? To make the casts, Thompson uh, injected vessels uh, in prepared human body parts with fluid resin that, that uh, then filled the vessels. The, the resin was fluid, it filled the, the vessels, and then it solidified. So then, the, afterwards, the flesh of the body part was corroded or dissolved away with hydrochloric acid to reveal the cast inside. So lungs, livers, kidneys, brains, hearts, arms and legs were processed in this way. And... Um, these were a type of model with particular claims to being almost identical to their original body molds. Uh, yet they were power these were powerfully convincing models that were designed, so they were both faithful to the bodies that they were cast from, but they were also carefully sculpted and crafted. So... Uh, Thompson became a kind of important uh, pioneer in corrosion casting with plastics. And he selected his working materials very carefully um, as these substances, he thought, these new plastics imbued the cast with uh, vitality, with kind of colourful life. And he was familiar, uh, very familiar, with previous methods used in this type of casting. Um, so... For example, um, he was, uh, Thompson was familiar, of course, with William Hunter's 18th century wax compositions. This is from a portrait of Hunter that, that hangs in the college. 
And he was also familiar with early 20th century uses of metals, of liquid metals. Wax, for Thompson's purposes, was too fragile, um, as Hunter had used it. And um, metals, as you see here, were too heavy because they distorted the vessels that they were meant to cast. They kind of dragged them down um, and then distorted them and made them unlike the living body, which was what he was trying to capture, a sense of the living body. So for um, Thompson was creating displays for a modern, what he saw as a modern anatomy museum. And so the material properties of resins produced a much more effective uh, set of results from his point of view. And his uh, technical manual, Anatomical Techniques, published in 1956 and revised in 1970, of course I've got both editions and I've been through them and compared them, um, these provided uh, detailed instructions for workers in medical schools who made specimens and models of anatomy. And in these uh, volumes, Tomsett aimed to reveal as completely as possible, he said, all the tricks of his trade. So he wanted to communicate his, um, his techniques to other workers, unlike some previous uh, modelers who had been very secretive about their uh, techniques, for example, I think Sam, you've written about um, Joseph Town's um, kind of secretive approach towards his 19th century modelling. On the contrary, uh, Thompson wanted to distribute, to, to make his techniques travel. Um, so diagrams showed workers how to inject vessels with resin with a very simple apparatus, um, including tubing and an enema syringe here injecting. You can see how he's injecting fluid uh, resin into the vessels of, of lungs in this diagram here. Um, and he developed his own toolkit, which he recycled as you know, parts of sort of medical equipment, dissecting instruments and paraphernalia from the house, such as button thread and linen thread. And he very much, he was in this ethos of the DIY toolkit, reusing, remaking um, uh, tools to his own purposes on a very, in a very sort of simple, basic way, which was effective nonetheless. So he was praised for his craft, for developing his tools and his techniques, inspired by the quote, cult of do-it-yourself. This was DIY anatomy, uh, DIY corrosion casting. So um, after casting the vessels, Thompson carefully pruned what he called these resin trees to expose deeper areas which would otherwise be kind of hidden by this mass of, of, of vessels. He would tidy the cast and create contours, kind of shaping it. Casts then required mounts and cases for display to protect them. And so here we see collaborators so at the Royal College of Surgeons, such as Sidney Bartlett here, um, making the perspex casing for these uh, precious, quite fragile uh, constructions, which are meant for the eyes of students, not for their hands. They're not for handling. So the casing was very important. This is a kind of um, you know, emphasis on the display uh, uh, casing, which was very careful at the time, a kind of Damien Hurst uh, casing before Damien Hurst. Um, 
Bartlett also learned corrosion casting techniques from Tomsett. So there's a kind of learning practice here that's going on, a kind of distribution of technique. Um, and Tomsett's uh, techniques were also taken up more widely among, amongst anatomists and medical educators. And his published work uh, travelled all over the world. I've seen um, in medical schools in the north of Scotland um, take up of Tomsett's technique and in the south of Australia. So in Melbourne, for instance, um, there is a corrosion casting that was using uh, Tomsett's technique here by uh, Nye and Hardy, who were uh, in the departments of surgery and anatomy in Melbourne. And they're taking up his technique and using it to their own purposes to improve uh, surgical training, awareness of where the tubes are for the students who are going to be practicing surgery. Okay, displaying form. So central to Thompson's tech work was the drive to create effective ways of displaying the form, the shape, the structure of vessels in organs and body parts. So he's very much concerned with form, three-dimensional form. Although made from the dead, from the bodies of the dead, these casts were intended to uh, show the form of vessels in the living body. So he had to achieve a certain kind of transformation of these vessels from what might look dead to something that was bouncy and vital uh, and living so that he could communicate living anatomy, which was very much on the agenda in the mid-20th century in medical schools. So um, casts were designed to demonstrate anatomical parts in, of course, three dimensions, this crucial three-dimensionality, so that models could be viewed up close and in the round to encourage observation from different angles, from different positions, because, of course, in surgery, you can go in at all kinds of different angles, and you have to be able to see where all of these vessels work in three dimensions. This is the view of the same cast of the lungs from the side. So the depth, position, and relation of vessels, uh, such as those in the lungs, were made very clearly visible, differentiated with his color palette, which was very distinctive. So Thompson cast bodies of the young and the old, and these could be compared to show patterns of growth across the life course. He also cast the finest blood vessels in stillborns, in the whole bodies, of stillborns which were carefully injected uh, with resin to create delicate models of anatomy uh, both at the beginning of course and the end of life for this person. Um, so he uh, carefully cast and highlighted anatomical detail as when, uh, when you see here the vessels of the kidney, that was the you know, sort of really fine detail that he could bring out through this technique. And colour was uh, strategically employed for dramatic effect. So red and blue were, uh, of course, widely recognised as anatomical coding. Uh, but uh, Tomsett expanded the colour palette for anatomy into uh, turquoise, pink, orange, green, grey, yellow. You'll see when you visit the gallery this kind of palette that he's employing to differentiate these amazing vessels. This is the cast um, of vessels in the placenta of triplets. So he wanted to show the different vessels of the, of the, of the triplets 
uh, in the placenta. And again, the many vessels in the organs of the thorax and the abdomen of a male age 14. This was one of Tomsett's uh, most complex and accomplished tasks. I think he saw it as one of his kind of virtuoso pieces. It's in the frontispiece of his anatomical techniques book, and he was very proud of, of this particular one. So these resin casts then, they were displayed in the Hunterian Museum, and here you see the uh, Welcome Museum of Anatomy, uh, which was formed from the 1950s onwards. So you can see uh, medical students could view multiple casts in relation to preserved specimens uh, and diagrams of the same. <clears throat> so these were presented, as I've said, for, for eyes only. They were not for, for handling. Um, oh, this is a fantastic photograph of Thompson towards the end of his life, actually. He's holding a mould, which he was developing to make Perspex casing for his, uh, for his displays, um, which uh, I've heard have actually exploded since, since, maybe, maybe, only a couple, okay, yeah. Um, so there he is. And then again, into the 90s with diagrams and photographs uh, still on display for students to, to study. And these models continue to be exhibited uh, and interpreted in anatomy and surgical training at the Royal College of Surgeons today. So this is in the uh, Welcome Museum of, of Anatomy and Pathology uh, where students can view uh, uh, Thompson's casts. So for the Designing Bodies exhibition, we took quite a few out of storage, out of the background of the museum, and uh, into the gallery, which is what you will see when you go there uh, at lunchtime. And out of uh, maybe 200, was it 200 casts in the end that are there? We had to choose you know, a, a small selection, so hopefully um, we made a good selection uh, for the show. Okay. Designing limbs. Um, yeah, so um, the uh, second set of models that, that we have in the show was uh, developed by John Hicks, who was a surgeon at Birmingham Accident Hospital, uh, which was established in, in the 40s, in the early 40s, to deal with um, uh, uh, ac accident and trauma. And his uh, collection was then uh, gifted by his daughter when he died uh, to the Royal College of Surgeons, so it's held here. And uh, Hicks made and used models as a means to research and demonstrate the workings of the lower leg and foot, models that, that his colleagues credited as uh, ingenious, quote. So he was fascinated by the mechanics of these anatomical parts of the foot. Um, and he, his models were, his, his design of models was driven by his attempts to describe and display movement and to improve medical treatment of injuries such as fractu uh, fractured bones. So like Thompson, his modeling practice contributed to the understanding of living anatomy uh, yet the materials and techniques that he used and consequently the anatomical forms that he produced were very different, as you can see. Contrasting with Tomsett's fluid, colourful vessels, 
Hicks's limbs were geometric and angular. Tomsett's model design was all about capturing the curve, the intricate curve and detail, intimate detail, but Hicks' design um, was uh, moving towards simplification into cube-like shapes, almost to the point of abstraction. So he is, more, is pushing his modelling in a more abstract direction compared with Tomsett, who's concerned with intense detail. His colour palette is, is also much more restricted and minimal. Um, so like Tomsett, though, Hicks dissected and um, studied uh, amputated limbs and deceased bodies. And this anatomical work with the dead uh, informed, uh, it formed the basis of his design. So I'm going to show um, some human remains here. So uh, working in, uh, in the hospital setting as a surgeon, Hicks had access to amputated limbs and he examined these, he used them in his research he dissected feet to investigate and experiment with bones and tendons so that their form and function in the living body could be better interpreted. So he's trying to understand the dead body and how it can show the function of the living by experimenting with it. And these form the basis of his modelling practice. Um, <clears throat> so one of Hicks's main working materials was wood, He's not looking to make um, models that absolutely resemble the body in a detailed way. He's looking to model mechanisms and more, in a more abstract way. And a lot of his models are sort of wood fitted with metal components. These were suited to his modeling priorities, um, as I say, because he's not after close resemblance. He's not trying to create close resemblance. He's trying to provide a very clarified demonstration of motion which is very difficult to do. Um, and again, like Tomsett, uh, Hicks recycled household objects uh, or domestic items for his modeling practice. So uh, here, for example, uh, is, uh, you can see the round object is a wooden uh, sewing thread bobbin, and he's, he's using ribbon out of the haberdashery box, kind of anatomical haberdashery. Um, and there's other ribbons that you can see that are sort of printed up that he's recycled, and a drawing pin as well is in this uh, model. And here he recycles these in, or, uh, in order to make a model of the base of the foot. So he's using materials from everyday life in anatomical modelling, and this was really consistent with Hicks's approach uh, to the human body, which he compared with household items. Uh, for instance, a stool uh, to help uh, readers understand his points more fully. So his metaphors that he uses to describe the body are drawn from everyday life, from the household, just as his materials are for his modelling practice. And in the same vein, he also used analogies that linked the joints, for example, in the leg and foot with wooden uh, hinges in houses. So it's very much a kind of domestic aesthetic which is moving toward, nevertheless, moving towards the abstract. So um, Hicks drew on various media to communicate his models as effectively as possible. And this use of multimedia, of intermediality that I've sort of talked about in other work that I've 
developed is quite important in Hicks's design practice. So he made films of his models in action, and he produced a series of photographs showing models uh, to demonstrate particular movements and particular injuries. Um, so to show the workings of a simple hinge movement, as he described it, he would photograph a model shifting from one position to the next. Um, he used uh, cleanly executed drawings of models to further demonstrate the movement of the foot, helping viewers to visualize, to imagine, and to grasp dynamic form and function. So he's, used, he's a very clarified line that he's using. And uh, with diagrams, Hicks distilled his models of foot movement even further, honing them, and therefore moving the body part that that represented into a kind of clear, sharply uh, delineated set of visible lines. Okay, so modeling movement. <clears throat> Much of Hicks's model design was put into practice on paper and with paper, finding ways to display limb, how limbs twist, shape, uh, shift, rotate, and maintain balance. Hicks sculpted, assembled, and made visual images. Uh, of models and with a range of visual media he brought his models to life animating them with assistance from hospital nurses and technicians because again it's a kind of collaborative project this making and use of models so Hicks modeled motion in the foot with cardboard and you can see of this reconstruction that we made in the in the gallery uh, a, a little later and he, uh, this was originally in the archive in pieces in with his um, sets of negatives. And I sort of found it and got very excited about this particular piece, which looks suspiciously like a part of a model. And there we saw three more pieces and fitted it together and worked it out. So we were able to reassemble a model that had got dispersed in the archive, which was very exciting. Um, and he took photographs to display how the model worked to demonstrate oblique or diagonal hinge movement on the uh, ankle. And um, surviving negatives of these photographs in Hicks's archive here at the Royal College uh, reveal how they were uh, cropped for publication in his articles. So if you look behind the photo cropped photograph in a publication, you see, if you see the negative, you can reveal the other operators who are behind the scenes, in this case, uh, a nurse who's helping him to operate the cardboard foot model, uh, but she's chopped out of the frame in the, in the published version. Like the sociality, the social relation is cropped out in the publication, but we can reconstruct it through his negatives and if you dig into the archive uh, sufficient, in sufficient detail um, to reveal the collaborative nature of these projects. And a further ne uh, negative shows another nurse uh, demonstrating this model, which again would have been cropped out uh, for publication. There's also obviously a gendered dimension to, to, to these practices too, which is very interesting. Um, so Hicks investigated limbs in the living as well as the dead, and I've kind of speculated whether that is actually his foot, but I'm, it looks as though the person whose foot it is is also grabbing, their, demonstrating their toe, but maybe not, I don't know. Um, 
And then he translated these observations into models. So he mapped the same structures, such as the arch of the foot, across different media. So this arch here, which is pointed out with the dots, um, is then mapped onto three-dimensional models of the same structure. He took x-rays of the same and made outline tracings of that structure and then made sequences of minimal diagrams of the same to develop and reinforce his anatomical descriptions. So he's working across a whole series of different kinds of media in two and three dimensions, each time honing it down to a, to a more a clarified line. Um, so Hicks claimed that the simplest way to depict the foot was as a triangle, of course. It's a, tri it's a geometric form. The, tri the triangle was central to his model for demonstrating what he described as the windless mechanism, which is what he's known for, for, for demonstrating this particular mechanism, which happens when the big toe, when your big toe extends, the tissue underneath uh, the foot shortens and the arch of the foot uh, raises. I hope I've got that anatomical description correct, Susan. You can tell me later. Um, so yeah, so just as Hicks's models helped him to study, understand, and display movement, so did his sketches on paper. Um, outlines of foot anatomy uh, are explorations of balance, uh, where he worked his way through layers of tissue paper, working over different kinds of um, how do you describe balance, how do you represent it uh, in the foot. And he also which we've got in the gallery as well, there's hundreds of uh, repeated, rapidly drawn stick figures, uh, which were, for Hicks, a means to analyse a wide range of movements, uh, from uh, rising off a chair, as you see on the top there, to uh, walking upstairs and uh, standing on one leg, which uh, visitors are invited to do in the gallery, but don't topple over if you do follow that instruction. Um, so, uh, Hicks also encouraged his readers of his analysis to make their own models. He says, the best way to understand what I'm describing is for you to make a model as well. Don't just look at my models, make your own, which is an interesting issue in the transmission of knowledge and how do you transmit the kind of knowledge that he's dealing with. You make a model yourself and put it into practice. So. Uh, you take it from a two-dimensional page and get it into three dimensions in your own hands. And so uh, this was one way that Hicks uh, developed to show uh, foot uh, movement. And to, in that spirit of getting people to participate in model making in the gallery, uh, you'll see in the Hicks section that we have a, a handout, which is a little pop-out um, Oh, yes, it's in your thing. It's in your, it's in your pack. It's in your pack. Okay, yeah, so this is the model that we reconstructed from the archive, which you can then remake in the gallery to participate in this practice. And again, you can become a model yourself by standing on one foot, thinking about what is your foot doing in terms of maintaining balance. Uh, and that was one of Hicks's sets of instructions for the reader to be a model themselves, to use their own bodies to gain knowledge of anatomy. Okay, how am I doing for time? 
10. Okay, I can do it in 10. Designing brains. So the third set of models then, the final set, uh, is really about the brain. Um, and uh, so what we explored in this section is a model uh, which is the model, modeled anatomical replica for training young neurosurgeons, which is Martin. Um, and this is very exciting development here, which is being made on site and developed as we speak. Um, so in 2011, when uh, Major David Baxter, a neurosurgeon in the Royal uh, Army Medical Corps, he, he asked if a brain and skull could be made for surgical training. He asked Martin Cook, who is one of the lead developers on this project, can you make a brain? Can you make a brain and for surgical training? And if so, let's do it. So this triggered a whole collaborative and still ongoing design process uh, led by Martin Cook, uh, who's head of conservation in the museum's department here. And the team also drew in medical artist Lydia Carline and Imperial College London medical student um, Claudia Craven, and there are other participants. Uh, uh, as, as, as you'll see, including Claire Rangeley, who's here and will be talking a bit later uh, about her work. So the agreed aim was to make a model that allowed trainee surgeons to practice surgery uh, in preparation for cases of emergency head injury. So it's to, it's to encourage young neurosurgeons to develop their skills when dealing with uh, accident and head trauma in emergency situations. Um, and so junior trainees can gain practical experience of several procedures uh, with, this, with this model, including cutting into the skull and draining fluid from the brain. So research and development for this, for Martin, for Martin model required sketching, drawing, and crucially, exploration of materials uh, for creating the model. So Martin Cook carried out a series of tests with materials for making the model in several components. So this, you know, talking with, Mod, with Martin about the exploration of materials for making this model is just incredibly complex and in-depth exploration of all kinds of different materials, which is entirely fascinating. This is really just a distilled account of this process of making a brain. Um, so for casting the brain, um, Various gelatine variants mixed with substances were trialled, um, as were methods for adding colour to the brain. Um, this, this was a trial that failed. Um, Martin Cook keeps all of the failed trials because that's part of the learning process in the design practice. Uh, this is a colour that wouldn't mix with the gelatine to produce the desired effect uh, for the colour of the brain. Sorry, which is... That's the successful version. Um, so, yeah, so acrylic paint wouldn't mix, and so that one couldn't be used. have to move on to a different solution. This is all part of the design practice, this sort of uh, trial and error. So failed and rejected materials are recorded for future reference. Uh, for casting the skull, uh, Cook explored casamite, wood glue, which is a powder mixed with water in various uh, uh, solutions and um, also variations of silicone rubber 
uh, with different densities for making the muscle that was needed. You can see the muscle here, the successful material is here uh, on the right. By the way, in the exhibition, we had a kind of touch table where you could, uh, you could touch these materials because feel is obviously a really important part of the design practice because these have to feel like the real thing. So I I'm not sure. We've got, okay, we've got a touch table that you can uh, explore and squidge some of these uh, uh, materials for yourself. And so, yeah, so there's a whole process of selecting the right kind of material with the right feel, the right look for the design. Um, yeah, so oh, this is testing for the uh, dura, the, the um, membrane that lines the skull. Uh, Martin experimented with rice paper, which is, is brilliant when it's wet. It's just like the dura, apparently, when it's wet, but when it's dry, it's too crispy, so it's no good. Uh, so again, that's more kind of design trialing for this making practice. Um, so for the making of the model brain, a real brain, a brain specimen from the Wellcome Museum was uh, used as reference for modeling. Okay. Uh, so model brain was made. There's other points of reference for the modeling of the brain. This is a uh, Adam Rooley uh, version. So these are all kind of processes that you will see in the exhibition as to how the brain was actually made and constructed with the ventricles, the space uh, in there. The skull was cast, a real skull was cast to create um, molds from which multiple casts can be made. Um, and this is the successful material for the Dura, which was painted on latex uh, for lining the skull. This is assembling the, uh, the, the, the brain and the skull in two parts, which is how it's constructed, uh, documenting the whole process. And that's the finished product that the student will actually see and manipulate and drill into and deconstruct in the training sessions. So this, this model is really all about handling. Just as Thompson was all about looking and training the eye, this is a lot about the, the lot is at stake with training the hands with dexterity as well as vision. So um, the model is used to simulate all kinds of different procedures. Here we've got students uh, in workshops here at the Royal College of Surgeons practicing their techniques on uh, the model. And then their feedback on the use of this design then feeds into the improvement of the design. So it's a kind of dialogic process where users feedback their views and then the design is developed. One issue that came out was this, the, the, the amount of dust that's produced with the drilling of the skull, which is not entirely helpful. And so there are different ideas about how this might be. There might be a solution to the dust that's produced uh, with, with the use of the model. Um, and used models are also saved and conserved as resources for thinking about how to redesign and improve the uh, Martin model. So it's a whole kind of dialogic, um, ongoing process of design that happens with all these different users and makers, uh, which is really interesting. An another iteration of the model is the insertion of the... Um, of blood clots inside here. This is a cross-section, so you can see a cross-section through the ventricles um, in the Martin brain with the, uh, the blood clots that students can uh, manipulate. 
and uh, a pediatric version, a baby, an infant version of the uh, Martin brain is being developed by Claire, who will be talking about that, I think, or demonstrating that uh, later. Okay, so um, just to wrap up then, really, just very briefly, um, uh, what I tried to do then in the exhibition and, you know, in this sort of short talk is just to kind of draw out some of the, the main issues as I see it in terms of design practice in this kind of terrain, in this context, which is really um, trying to think about the role of materials and how materials inform design. So it's not just human thinking, um, but it's a matter of embodied practice and engagement with all kinds of different materials that gives rise to certain kinds of anatomical design. So, you know, let's think about how materials impact on design practice. Um, and, of course, the development of technique and how techniques are developed not just by a single inventor, but in a kind of dialogic um, process which involves all kinds of users um, and interpreters. So... Um, technique is an interesting issue to be looking at in this context, which I think is crucial uh, in the design of, of, of an anatomical and surgical objects. And then <coughs> the embodied collaboration uh, of makers in the design process, I think, is, is really important. The kinds of embodied skills that they develop um, and how they uh, use those to, to, to develop designs over time, uh, because, of course, these are all evolving designs they don't just stop they are improved um, they are come out in different iterations and different different move in different directions so just finally one direction that the um, Martin model is moving in is it's being taken up at Imperial College where they're training in robotic surgery so this Martin model is um, here uh, being trialed for use in uh, training robots to do particular kinds of uh, surgical procedure. So this model isn't just involved with people, it's involved with all other kinds of actors, including in this, set, in this context, uh, robots. So this, are the, this is the, uh, the robot's little kind of pincers going in to the, to the environment inside the Martin model. And this was taken, this photograph was taken by the robot, which had a photograph uh, uh, on an endoscope, so uh, it just kind of makes us think about all kinds of different uh, practices and participants in the uh, design process. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Liz. Um, while Liz gathers her breath and we think about our terribly eloquent questions for her, for those of you who are able and inclined, may I encourage you to stand up. So that was the end of the sentence. May I encourage you to stand up? Um, and then stand on one, if you are oh, able yeah, and yeah, safely, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. stand on one foot. Yeah. Now, what is it that, that Hicks so wanted Hicks, us to do? So Hicks says, stand on one foot, and then think about, focus on your foot that you're standing on, and think about what your foot is doing in terms of maintaining balance. What kind of movement is your foot making in order to maintain the balance? Uh, and he was trying to think about those mechanisms and how they operated. 
uh, but this is part of a tradition of anatomists in, from the mid-20th century onwards, getting students to be their own models. So you understand anatomy from the inside rather than from an external representation. So there you go. You've just been a, a medical model. model yeah? <laughs> also, we don't have a morning coffee break, so that was your, you know, getting... I think it gets the blood flow and thinking. Um, so good. during that, we have uh, some time for um, questions uh, to Liz. Please. Yeah, um, the simplification uh, is part of, I think, was in the trend, the, more of the sort of arc in the, in the development of how anatomists are, used, are thinking about how to communicate anatomy in medical schools. From the mid-19th century, they're looking towards a reduction of detail. So the intense detail, the absolute detail that they're after in the kind of mid, you know, around about the sort of 50, 1850s, 1880s, starts to get stripped out and, and there's a concern with time efficiency. We don't need this kind of level of detail in the medical curriculum. For, this is what is emerging. And so there's an issue about detail and depth of detail and how you manage detail. And so you get progressively, well, not really progressively because it moves in and out, but um, you do get uh, anatomists moving towards representations that are simplified and abstract and diagrammed. And then on the, on, the, um, on the movement issue, there are anatomists who are using film and using photography. Um, for example, uh, Robert Lockhart in, um, in Aberdeen in, the, in northeast Scotland is using photography to, 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 um, to communicate living anatomy, so that he's photographing his own students in particular kinds of uh, poses to show muscle or surface anatomy. Um, but, and sequencing is an issue. Yeah, see, they do use sequencing as an issue in order to kind of communicate certain kinds of movement. And they're using film. So they're using multimedia because the, you know, the, the development of this approach whereby you're not reliant on one single medium but rather you work out a whole load of intersecting media that kind of does, does jobs from, di does different, has different kinds of purposes. Yeah, yeah. quite hard to reconstruct student consumption of models actually um, we've got I mean there are photographs the photographs here which are quite well documented for this collection um, there are reviews of his of, of um, Tom Soot's techniques which go out in the medical press which 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 do describe you know positive reaction um, 
but I don't have any direct student accounts or description. I think I'd have to go to med maybe search out some mid 20th century student medical student diaries, but um, that'd be gold dust. Very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it is a, yeah trying to get user. It's a, it's a, always a problem trying to get user user perspectives rather than maker perspectives. So you kind of have to infer it from the environment from from all the sort of supporting documentation, I suppose. Yeah, I haven't actually. It's one thing to look at actually. I haven't looked at. I haven't been. I haven't reconstructed Tom Sitt's actual. Um, practice outside of his making practice. In other words, it would be good to situate what he's doing in relation to the teaching that's going on inside the college. Um, so yeah, that would be good. Yeah, thank you. Susan. Yeah, for him, there's not a conflict there. I mean, in terms of faithfulness and intervention, there's not, it's, it's all okay. You, you have to, do, pruning is something that he talks, he describes in quite a lot of detail in his uh, techniques manual. And it's something that he, he developed his own tools to do it with. And he, um, it was a very intensely kind of consuming activity. And you can see from some of his description that it's quite a tense activity as well. Uh, but he's, uh, he's drawn into it. He's like he's almost trapped by it. Um, but no, he doesn't. I don't think in that discourse that there's a conflict between faithfulness and pruning because it's, the, the sculpting and the pruning is to reveal what is there. So it depth. So if, if he, I don't think I had an unpruned version of a long cast, but I think there's one in the exhibition there's an unpruned version, and you can see it's like a kind of thicket. You can't see through it into deeper levels. And so his pruning is to, it, to reveal some of the bigger structures behind the really tiny ones, let's say in the lungs, for instance, and to take off little bits that are, irre are irrelevant or shouldn't be there. But this crafting is not seen as something which is disturbing the faithfulness of the, uh, of the piece. But there is that tension, isn't there, that between the supposed true-to-nature, straight-from-nature veracity of a cast, well, that it's actually as, as crafted and as it, it's, worked. But as it's, okay, uh, it's okay, though, yeah. because from the early 20th century, you've got the, admi you've got the embracing of the imagination in anatomical teaching rather than the rejection of it, which you've got in the 19th century. You know, you've got this, we need it. We need imagination to, to get our heads into this, uh, into this uh, bodily structure. So, so it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to mess about with it. And a, a very brief final question. Uh, 
there is an ingenious connection, a kind of kinship connection between, between Tom Soot's uh, casts and the Martin model. And that is in, the, uh, in Tom Soot's cast of the ventricles in the brain, uh, which Martin Cook used as the model for the ventricles in the Martin model. So one thing that I'm really interested in is looking at the kinship in those, between those models, because the Martin model, in a sense, takes from the Tom Soot model. And, and Martin has in his possession uh, the copy of the second edition of the Thompson book that was passed to him by his predecessor, that was passed to him by Thompson himself. Did, did you have something very specific and swift? <laughs> Technically, I can't imagine how you how you could actually cast a ca cast a cast if you know what I mean. You know because it's so because uh, it's, it's so it's, intricate. It's the holy grail of 3D how you would printing. Get it out. Things, I don't yeah. know how you would get it out. Yeah. You could scan it. Yeah, 3D print. 3D printing is actually changing the landscape. Yeah. Um, we will continue all of these discussion go through, but I would like to thank Liz again for a really stimulating foundation to the day. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Um, and as our, our speakers swap over, um, I share Liz's very evident found, uh, fascination with makers, and which is uh, why I'm so delighted that we have uh, our next speaker, um, along with Claire this afternoon, is one of the best anatomical makers working in the country today. I'm very pleased to welcome Eleanor Crook, who will be known to many of you. Her work features upstairs in the Hunterian Museum and in many other uh, places. And uh, she tells me she's working on a medieval anatomical tomb sculpture in Winchester at the moment. For Winchester. Uh, and I, I, I'd never <laughs> cease to su be surprised by your work. Um, but today she'll be telling us about her work in anatomical modeling. I'll pour you some water. Sam and Haley, thank you very much for the invitation. And Liz, thank you so much for that incredible input, which really makes me want to run out of the door to my workbench. But I'll show some pictures first. Um, uh, my plan is to show you a few of the things I make in case you haven't seen them before. Um, I won't talk too much about my own techniques because I'm going to present them at lunchtime and it's much easier for me to present them when I've got all the materials in front of me. Uh, then I'm planning to tell you about a strange opportunity that was given to me to get up very, very close to some of the best anatomical waxes that have ever been made and what I found out from daring to touch them. Uh, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about why when I drove past Madame Tussauds this morning at 20 to 9 on a Saturday morning in the rain, people were queuing 10 deep to get in. I have some suspicions about what draws them through the door, and I don't think it's just the celebrities that they are going to see. So, deliquescent self, waxworks, mimetic technique, and the fear of melting. Inspect yourselves. Do you have a fear of melting? I suspect you do. Forwards. Is it this one? Thank you. 
Hello. Is that what you use, Liz? If Alex was here, he could have frowned at it and it would have just worked immediately. Um, okay. I do a lot of my work at the Gordon Museum at Guy's Hospital, which is notable for its incredible collection of 19th century waxworks by the highly secretive, somewhat mysterious Mr. Joseph Town, who worked in a creepy basement, put wax in the keyhole so that nobody could spy on him working. And uh, his methods are pretty opaque when you look at the objects that he made. They really are. Um, and also there's been lots of misinformation and mythologies passed around about how he made his things, how they were carved from solid blocks of wax and other confusing and rather misleading suggestions. And having spent many, many hours looking at these things and having seen a few broken ones and having had a closer look at the Italian ones which he saw early in his career and was no doubt influenced by, I've a few ideas on how they were made. Uh, they're an amazing collection if you get an opportunity to visit them, and it's a little bit difficult because the museum isn't open to the non-medical public. Uh, they're pretty mind-blowing. And his techniques were a mixture of modeling, which is starting with nothing, adding pieces of wax together by hand and producing an object, and casting, which is taking a negative impression from either another piece of wax or from another person living or deceased or from yourself or whatever. Um, and the relationship between modeling and casting isn't always completely understood or, or interpreted by people who look at wax collections. And indeed, as someone who makes them and has made them for years and years, if they're really well done, sometimes they can fool even someone who makes them. So it's a, it's a very questionable thing. Recently, I had an experience that changed some of my ideas about how some of this stuff was made, and I'll talk about that at the end when I talk about melting. Um, I'd say you could roughly divide his oeuvre into anatomical showpieces and dermatological moulages at the Gordon Museum. This is one of the anatomical showpieces. When I look at that, if you ask me how much of that is cast and how much of that is modelled, I would start with the feeling or suspicion that none of it is cast and the whole, the whole thing is modelled, looking at the different layers, but we could probably talk about that for some time. My own stuff, very heavily influenced by looking at those, also by the access that I've been given to looking at and drawing from uh, dissection specimens with medical students who I work with teaching drawing and observation skills. Um, and I spend quite a long time just trying to learn my stuff firsthand by looking. I was generously taught by Susan there, uh, head and neck at guys, and tried to keep up with everybody and drew and drew and drew and kept looking and found it impossible to 
develop any kind of clinical detachment from the people who'd so kindly donated themselves for our education and instead cultivated the opposite, really, which I call a very unprofessional attachment. Um, and that runs through all the things I make, really. As you look at my stuff, you'll probably see I've got quite a pessimistic view about the body and a horrible suspicion that something of the personality hovers around uh, the body after it's deceased, either in our imagination or in the air or somewhere, and it becomes impossible to ignore. I'll show you this one. It's a very early one of mine, and it's full of anatomical errors, but it gets across a point that I have, that making these very detailed anatomical showpieces is time-consuming and a sort of obsessional pursuit. And I think a lot of them have a kind of possessiveness in them, a perhaps even a slightly unhealthy possessiveness. I certainly see it in the Joseph Town models, which are deliciously dead is the best way to describe them. Um, this is a, a poet for whom I, what's the word, conceived an affection, who issued me with a very disappointing romantic rejection. Um, and the romantic rejection letter, which was gentlemanly and polite, as befitted a poet, arrived at the same time as I'd just started making an anatomical model for teaching bits to my students. And so I'm afraid the poet and the anatomical model became the same thing. And if I can be really candid about the motivation behind this, it was possessive. It was, okay, if I can't have that person, I'm going to make one, and I'll have it then. Um, this may not sound entirely healthy, but it was quite therapeutic, and by the time I'd made it, I didn't want him anymore, <laughs> which was probably an enormous relief to him. I don't know if he ever saw it. I'm being very cagey about who it is, because I know somebody in this room knows him, um, although they may not realize it. Uh, but that was the story. Uh, but there is a sort of possessiveness and a kind of not altogether healthy sense of power in being able to materialize something that you very badly want to have, um, which uh, I think you can capitalize on. And it gives you a certain amount of energy and drive in getting these things made that take so long and are so fiddly and so frustrating to try to make. There he is in Technicolor. It's actually quite a sympathetic portrait of him. Poor Harry, he deserved better. He probably found it. Um, if you want to see one of my finished ones, there's one upstairs here. It's um, on the mezzanine, and it's in the First World War plastic surgery section. Um, and it's a sort of collage of a number of famous plastic surgery operations by Sir Harold Gillies. And I've made some dermatology models for the Gordon Museum of diseases that Joseph Town probably wouldn't have seen. There's bubonic plague. If you start to look like his left-hand side, get yourself to hospital antibiotics. If you start to look like his right-hand side, things are not looking good. Um, a lot of my work's about not the physical appearance of being ill, but just the feeling of being ill. Uh, this little chap sits up in a hospital bed and he has a little feather on a clockwork spindle that just spins and cuts across his throat here. And one has the feeling of somebody sitting up in a hospital bed feeling very ill and hoping that the feather doesn't stop. 
just the feeling of being uh, hanging by a thread, I suppose. And uh, some of the ones I do are, well, this one, it looks more depressing than it actually was. It moves its head and mumbles a bit, and it recites a poem by the poet Brian Greene, which is thankfully very funny about mortality and the experience of being on the point of death. How he manages to be so funny about such a thing, I've no idea, but he does. Uh, and so there's a sort of rueful quality to it when it was on show. And another thing I've been doing is memorialising plastic surgery operations, facial plastic surgery operations, and how they have changed over the years. There's one that starts with the Crimean War, where wounds were just closed over, really. Um, some famous First World War operations. There's a forehead flap reconstruction for the nose. Um, that's one of the well-known burns uh, treatments for the uh, guinea pigs, so-called, of the Second World War, the uh, burned airmen. He's having his nose reconstructed with a tubed pedicle of skin carrying an artery across to his lost nose. Uh, there's a more modern one showing an early stage in someone's complete facial transplant. And there's another First World War one straight out of the Gillies and Tonks images. Uh, this is a more recent bronze anatomical figure, uh, which is a sort of St. Bartholomew figure dancing on top of its own skin, which it seems pleased to have got rid of. And it's bronze from wax. And about this big. And it's, a, it's as true as I was able to make it at the time. Oh, the other important thing I should mention about that one is it's for sale. Oh, um, <laughs> There's a liquidity to wax and a sort of sweatiness and an oiliness that speaks to you of your own skin and your own sort of substances. And this is why it stands in for flesh so very well. And some of the other materials that can be mixed with it, some of the varnishes and resins and pigments and so on, are so close to the things that you yourself produce that actually it's only a whisker away from being the stuff to making the stuff. And in fact, that sort of liquid and that sort of melting quality of wax is something I haven't completely capitalized on yet in what I'm doing. And it's something I'm sort of moving into, how things can be dipped and poured and second skins made that seem to peel. But it, this is all a very tactile side of what we do, and it's easier for me to show it you from what, what I have upstairs in my cookery collection. Um, so I just want to talk to you about some technical and more historical materials. Uh, this is the wax factory in Redhill, Surrey, where I still get my materials. Uh, in the late 19th century, I suppose, or early 20th century, uh, the blocks that you can see there, the white blocks, are beeswax, which is being bleached in the sun. Beeswax is naturally yellow, as you know. Uh, if you leave it in the sun, it goes beautifully white. Um, and in the old days, this would have been quite a common sight, the wax bleaching fields. Think how many ecclesiastical candles were made and think what an important industrial substance it was in the past. That factory burnt down, I must say. There's always this fire risk with wax. 
They left the burners on overnight. Uh, and the wax itself goes back from white to yellow if you don't protect it from the light or add certain ingredients to keep it white. And these are some uh, 18th century hands by the famous wax model Anna Morandi, which surely weren't that colour to begin with. Uh, a lot of her work seems to me to have yellowed quite badly. It's possibly also with some of the Damar varnish they used in those days. Uh, the great wax modeler, in my view, who solved some of these technical problems and produced a wax that looks color, you know, the color has kept to the present day and hasn't deteriorated at all visibly, uh, and not in the collection I was working with, is Clemente Sassini, um, late 18th century wax modeler and great master whose famous collection is in the Museo della Specula in Florence but who made a less well-known collection for the King of Sardinia in Cagliari uh, on the Citadel in Sardinia. A superb collection and his last set of works, big collection. Um, and I suspect he probably died of the poisonous materials he was using shortly after making it. Um, this is an additive that he puts in his wax um, that's not so well-known. It's a white wax produced by insects, uh, and it was produced industrially in China from... I think the late Renaissance, it's... Can you see? The insects are not the ants. The ants are actually trying to eat the insects that make this wax. The insects that make the wax are underneath the white carapaces. Can you see the tortoiseshell-like carapaces? Those are made of wax. There's a tiny insect underneath them that's extruded that wax from its body. Um, and in China, they used to harvest this stuff. They're really small. I mean, can you imagine how small those little pellets are? They used to grow the plant that attracts the insect, farm the insect, and harvest the wax and send it all around the world down the Silk Road as a special ingredient. If you add it to beeswax, it makes it much whiter, much denser, higher melting point, kind of shiny. It's a beautiful ingredient, and you can't really get it anymore. I'll show you the closest I've found upstairs. Um, but there it is, and the insect itself is called Chinese Waxworker, or Keraplastes sinensis. Um, so one feels an affinity with the little chaps. You could get it in posh grade or not so posh grade. Uh, the other things you find in these historical waxes are um, offshoots from the whaling industry, which again, you can't get these days. That's oil from a sperm whale. Once an industrial product, now distinctly off the menu. You see poor old Moby Dick being brought low on the uh, picture on the noise. Uh, rosin is something rather unexpected that you find in these waxes. This is what the ballet dancers put on their toes and the violin players put on their bows. If you, I'll show you upstairs. If you take lumps of it, you can melt it in the wax, but you think it's never going to melt. You just have to stir it forever. And it rolls around like little lumps, and then it melts. And it gives to the wax uh, stretchiness, which makes it really beautiful for modelling or extruding. Um, and you can really control the texture of what you're going to work with by how much of that goes into it. There it is, pretending that it's never going to melt. But sooner or later it does. I, I was very lucky. I got a little grant to work at the Byam Shore when it still existed, and I spent a whole season just making these recipes and seeing what would, what would work. 
When I started looking at the Susinis, I wondered what equipment they used to work so cleanly when obviously they had to heat everything over open fires and there would be charcoal and soot all over the place. And I couldn't find anything quite that early, but this is um, from, I think from the encyclopedia, so it's a similar sort of period, isn't it? Um, and you see, you know, very large metal vats. You see little things with furnace fires underneath a big formed pouring vessel and all sorts of specially made equipment designed for dealing with wax on an industrial scale. So I think we can imagine our 18th century anatomical modeling factories containing this kind of equipment and of course teams of people to do the work. There it is, it's a whole vat of this wax being mixed and heated over, an, over a, a wood or charcoal fire. It's, uh, it's sort of an anathema because it's so difficult to work cleanly with these materials. The pigments are interesting too. Plenty of places you can get information on them, but the one that really captured my imagination was this cinnabar chinabro, which is sulfate of mercury, very poisonous. Um, makes a beautiful blood color, which you see in the Sassini models all over the place. You can see it poking out of some arteries there. Um, one particular vein of it was to be found high up on a cliff in Spain as a, what's the word, as a mineral, high up on a cliff so high that nobody could dare climb up to get it. So they used to have archers shoot it down with arrows and scrape it up at the bottom. It's a very romantic way of getting your pigments. It's almost as romantic as going to Cornelison's on Great Russell Street, almost. So these are the models that I was invited by Professor Sandro Riva, who is the head of this collection, uh, to do some mending on. I won't say cons conservation, I will say mending, because um, this whole collection of models, I don't know how many there are, there's loads. There's a very good website about it if you're curious. Um, during the Second World War, they were hidden in caves and the sixth formers from the local school grabbed them all and took them to these caves. And some of them got dropped and some of them got damaged. Uh, and they were sort of remounted in the 1970s. And there's a very nice museum for them now. But there's still quite a bit of visible damage here and there. And also some bits missing where an enthusiastic school party had been running around the room and knocked one completely over. And uh, various, I think the, uh, yes, the uh, stapes bone had gone missing, never been found, so. So I was called in and trusted to do some mending. Um, uh, technically, it was really difficult because I hadn't seen his materials close up before and we had to work out what they were. Luckily, there were some dabs of wax in the archive of his wax that were just left over. There, was, there wasn't very much, just like a handful of cornflakes. Um, and so we used that for all the mends. And it was a lovely material. It was nicer than anything I use. It was much harder whiter, stretchier, had a really nice working quality, um, which of course is like the lost chord to me now, and I've done lots of mixtures trying to recreate it. His works really hide their technique. They're, they don't give it away, and I've been up this close to them, touched them, handled them, and fixed a few, and I still, there's a lot of questions. I'd give a tooth or two to be able to go back and have a little look at how some of them were done. Okay, so what have we fixed? This was a skull whose styloid process had gone missing. 
Interestingly, when we looked at the muscle that ran up to it, we noticed that there was a little thread inside it. In fact, there's a cotton or a linen thread right, running right in the center of that. I think you can just see it on my picture there. So we fashioned up another styloid process from this bit of wax, fixed it on. There was a beautiful model, one of the best models I've ever seen, with an extended arm with all the vessels and a lot of nerves and layers and layers of detail, really. And the hand originally probably cast from his own, because you can see there's a little snag on his thumbnail. You can actually, you know, where he's chewed his own thumbnail. And it's still there all these years later. It's very touching to see that little personal thing. Um, so these were the little bits that were hanging off. And uh, I was trusted with the task of consolidating what was about to drop off, replacing a few of the things that had dropped off, and making good some bits that had really been completely lost. And these vessels became very interesting. When you handle them, they're hard, they're brittle, and they're crisp. You look inside them, hoping there's going to be a thread that explains how they're made, and there isn't one. It's nothing. Um, and the surfaces of them are beautifully smooth, almost varnished. And the wax is made of something quite, quite different from what the flesh, that thumb, say, that thumb pad, is made of. Quite different. It's more crystalline, if anything, shinier. And the only way I can think of that he's making those is to extrude them like cake icing from a piping or a syringe, a brass syringe from the old days. Um, and I've invested in a taller cake icing syringe and been trying to do it with some of the wax that I use upstairs with not perfect results as yet, because if I suddenly took up calligraphy, I couldn't do that either, and that's what it's akin to. Piping vessels onto a thumb like that is akin to calligraphy and, and has that level of control and difficulty. But a um, bit of practice, who knows? But look at the joints, look at the joints. You know, this is where one line is piped and then the piping nozzle is put right up to the still warm line, and the next line is piped away from it. We'll have a go upstairs. You can all have a try. We'll see who's got the steadiest hand. Uh, these are the pigments. That's the sulfate of mercury, and that is a pigment which you don't find in his Florentine waxworks, but you find it in his Cagliari waxworks, I think, because they'd only really just come up with it chemically, and that's Prussian blue. It fades his uh, his arteries are still lovely, but his veins have faded a little bit. They're too pale. Uh, that's just the toolkit. I'll show you later. Yes, this is the sort of thing I was having to repair. Now, those nerves, which look so brittle, they do have a thread inside them. And they're dipped in a mixture of wax and Damar varnish. Very heavy on the Damar varnish, quite light on the wax. So they're stiff and they're brittle. And luckily... When one was dropped off like that, when I wanted to flick it up and stick it back on, it only wanted to go in one place. So I had no choice but to get it back in the right place. And I mended an awful lot of these little hairs. Uh, that's the one where the stapes had gone missing, the little ear ossicle. Uh, so I made it a new stapes, which you can see there. And I have a guilty conscience. I think I've made it slightly too big. I hope to go back one day. I have, haven't I? I hope to go back one day and correct that. But they were pleased with it. One does one's best. 
There we go. And a lot of it was just replacing little bits of arteries that had snapped off and been dropped into the case. Back it goes, just a little wax weld. Oh, this was a, a colourful episode. There was um, a very nice presentation of the anatomy of the male member, which had been snapped off. And a former director of the museum had reattached it with roofing mastic. <laughs> and you can see the mastic there, can't you? Can you see it? Can you see it? So my task was to take away the visible parts of the roofing mastic. And then he'd attached it at a slight angle, so there was a bit of a step. And we didn't want to disattach it because I had this awful feeling we'd never get it back on again. So it was a matter of camouflaging the step with the right sort of materials. And I think we did. I think we did. It's okay. I, I, could, I can't explain how long it took to do this and how many hours I spent leaning over this with clinical detachment. <laughs> but I think we did quite a nice mend. This gives away how some of it's done. Look, this is a huge liver and it's beautifully produced. It's like an Easter egg. It's not thick. It's this very hard, rather crystalline wax again. And you can see right inside it. You can see how thick the walls are. Uh, I've looked and looked at this thing, and what I can't explain is how the surface of it was produced. It's smooth. It's beautiful. It's slightly matte, like the real thing. Um, there's no visible fingering or finger marks or tool marks. It's an extraordinary, flawless surface. My suspicion is he was modeling the forms up in a soft wax like the one I'll show you upstairs casting from it and then casting against a hard surface of something else. But I wouldn't like to put money on exactly how this was done and I admire them very greatly because they're big, difficult forms to produce. They've lasted so long, they're so thin, the weather there is unbearably hot and they haven't moved. They're top, top, top notch. There's that liver with that surface I so admire. I can sort of see how you do the vessels and the nerves. I can sort of see that. I can see how you do the small details. But how you do these big, perfect, simple shapes slightly eludes still. Here's one that was interesting. It was broken, dropped and broken into many, many pieces and had been mended. But there was a hole in the back. So we sneaked in and had a look with a close-up camera. And inside, there was far more anatomy than I expected to find, actually. And again, it's not clear to me whether this is modelled or cast. There's a sort of fibrous material in there, which is used as a sort of matting. One day, we shall go back with an endoscope. And this is just to show you a contrast, I suppose, between this sort of rather classical beauty of these Sassini models and the rather brutal beauty of the town models. That's a town model, which you can see it, guys. That's the Sassini model we were working on. Bit of a difference. Although this one has a pleading look. Seems to uh, be asking for help. It's a very touching facial expression on it. So just to sum up, wax makes such a good body and it taps on all that sort of subconscious fear of mortality and decay and 
deliquescence and impermanence. I always think of this when I hear of a celebrity at Madame Tussauds going back into the pot after they've fallen out of favor. You can imagine some recent celebrities who've fallen very badly out of favor, hit the bottom of the pot especially hard. Um, do you have a fear of melting? I think everybody has a fear of melting. The climactic scenes of House of Wax, both the original and the remake, are about seeing the waxworks melt. You know, and it's like a vision of time speeding up and mortality just happening right in front of you. And the terrible pathos of seeing the beauty of the figure just slide away and become something much more monstrous. This is from the old film, 1953. This is from the new film, uh, 2005, I think. Again, it's just enormous pathos, even though it's a cheesy, cheesy horror movie. And I think it's because you feel it in your own skin. It's so like your skin, that material. This gives me an opportunity to tell you how to put out a wax fire. If you do that, it's going to blow up in your face. Um, if you have a wax fire and your burner catches and you have a 10-foot column of flame up to the ceiling, the guys at British Wax tell me the way to put it out is to add more wax. Add fuel to the fire and it immediately will take the uh, flame down because it lowers the temperature of the whole mass of the material. That's what they told me. That or a fire blanket, but never water. It just spits like crazy. Um, and this watching waxworks melt has spawned an entire and revolting subgenre called the melt movie. I don't expect anybody here to have ever sat through an evening of melt movies, but I am your fearless researcher, and I've done this to experience the vicarious pleasure of this sort of accelerated vision of morbidity, I suppose. Um, and it's very close to the fear of the body itself melting. This is the old and gruesome Liverpool Museum of Anatomy, which contained really an object lesson for young men of the period not to have sex or they would get syphilis. Had many, many models of the disease that gives you the sort of deliquescence of the body, which was a sort of subconscious horror for so many years until it was curable with penicillin. You find it in the writings of Malcolm Larry. If you're interested, try reading Lunar Caustic. It's all about someone who was haunted by that wax museum in Paradise Street, where else? That's the one that causes the disease. And the disease itself causes the deliquescence of the flesh, which is shown so beautifully in this series of waxes. And that's the real thing. But the beauty of the wax that can be such wonderful flesh, like the Sassini models, can also express you know, this horror of how it can give up on you, really give up on you. Um, and I suppose that leaves me to finish with my last thing, which is a, an affectionate piece I've made for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, who wanted as many skin diseases as I could fit on one model, which they can now cure with their pharmaceuticals. So that's to be seen there. Again, it's another collage. I'll leave it there, but do come and play with my materials at lunchtime. Uh, well, I'm delighted to take the opportunity to sit facing this way for a little while. Um, we'll roll over a little bit into lunch, but Ellen, do you have time to, to take a, uh, respond to a couple of questions? Or do
do I need to get everyone to stand for me? Okay. <laughs> Poor Harry. Yes. You're thinking of Kokoschka's doll. Yeah. Have you ever seen a picture of it, though? She was made of seal skin, which was a strange erotic substitution for real skin. Seal skin for real skin. And uh, he took her to dinner a few times, but the relationship was a failure, and he ended up burying her. It's what happens when you objectify people. It just doesn't end well. It's true, they have an enormous human presence. It's something to do with the skill of how they're jointed. It's something puppet-like. questions? Jutella, thank you very much for a surprising and um, <laughs> marvellous talk about deliquescence. <laughs> Uh, our final speaker for this morning has actually done a great deal of work herself on the on the Sassini models, and in fact, her, her book, please do, uh, Model Experts, has just come out in paperback for twenty pounds only from yes. Manchester University Press. Total bargain. Uh, bargain, bargain <laughs> book. So buy that immediately after <laughs> you buy this, um, in which Anna features, of course. Um, uh, but today she's going to be moving us on from. We've had plastic, we've had wood, we've had a lot of wax. And now we're moving into papier-mâché. Right. Well, thank you, Sam. And, and thank you very much for, for inviting me uh, to be part of today's workshop. It's really exciting to see so many people in the sort of historical and present uh, model community and, and to learn so much about, about today's practices as well. I'm really looking forward to the hands-on workshop. One, one, one sort of last postscript on, 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 the, on the Suzini waxes. As you were doing, uh, showing us the, the um, damage... Um, 
I think someone really needs to go and sit down with the financial records of La Specula for at least a year because there's a lot of information you can really extract from, from that, including, for instance, um, the fact that uh, the first showcases in the museum that uh, got locks made for them were the showcases of the genitals. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, what, I want to, what I want to talk about today um, is um, the fabulous Dr. Ozu, um, a French model maker and physician who uh, was one of the early pioneers of the kinds of teaching models that many of us will have had our first encounters with anatomy through um, uh, the today made often in, in plastic, uh, the kinds of models where you open up the torso, you can take out the heart and open it up and you can take out the liver and you can play with all the different organs, uh, maybe familiar to many of us. And um, Ozu arguably is one of the first who really manages to develop a process um, of, of making dissectable models by using papier-mâché. Now, uh, just to give you a brief, um, um, prelude, uh, you've already seen in, in Eleanor's presentation uh, some of the predecessors to the Ozu models, um, the waxes, which especially in the 18th century really reach um, a high degree of perfection and, and verisimilitude. You've got um, a Susini model um, on the bottom here and a Morandi model of, a, of an ear um, to the right. These models are, of course, visually extremely appealing. Um, they do have that uncanny quality of the wax, that sort of sweatiness um, that, that Eleanor's describing. Um, but one thing they're not terribly good at is being handled. They don't particularly like to be taken apart and put together. I mean, there are models, uh, wax models from the 18th century, for instance, where you can do a, a bit of sort of um, a dissection where you can open up the torso and you can take out a few organs. Uh, but, but it's not something to be, to be done regularly and on a, on a daily basis if you want to keep them fairly intact. So they're quite, they're quite fragile. Um, and already in the, in the 18th century, there are quite a few modelers who um, are convinced that a more physical engagement with the model is going to give students uh, a better learning experience, that through hands-on interaction, you can learn different things from a model, model than you would uh, if, if, you, if you could just look at it. So you've got people experimenting um, with um, models that allow for hands-on interaction. So in the mid-18th century, for instance, you get so-called obstetric phantoms, such as the ones um, here on the, on the right, um, developed by the French royal midwife, Madame du Coudray, who um, created models out of materials such as textiles and, and leather and wood um, to enable uh, midwives and, and trainee midwives um, to, to do some hands-on training, um, learning how to turn a child in the womb, for instance. Um, you can see another example at the moment in, in the Welcome Collection, for instance. There's an 18th century Italian example of a model in, in leather, textile, and, and wood of one of those obstetric phantoms. Um, Felice Fontana, the scientist who uh, was overseeing um, the wax model uh, production at La Specola, he was in, in effect Clemente Susini's boss um, and a rather disgruntled one at that because they didn't have the easiest relationship at times. Um, but Fontana also 
um, decided um, that um, he he wanted to develop something a bit more a bit more robust um, and dissectable, and he experimented with wood. So he hired a carpenter to actually come into the modeling workshop and create a dissectable model in wood. And of course, that that turned out not not to work so terribly well uh, because with any um, any change in temperature or humidity, the wood would start to warp until it got to the point where you couldn't actually take it apart anymore because all the pieces had warped. Um, so there were quite a few people then, sort of around 1800 in the early 19th century, interested in this practical problem of handleable models. And arguably, the one who really was most successful at creating a solution was a Dr. Ozu, um, a French... Um, medical student uh, from a small village in Normandy who uh, probably saw Fontana's wooden model in Paris um, at the time and who started experimenting with a type of paper paste. Um, so he came up with a um, secret recipe um, consisting of paper pulp mixed in uh, with minerals, but also uh, things such as ground up cork. Um, and he ended up with a paste um, that uh, was much more robust um, when hardened. It was quite light, but it also had a certain degree of flexibility which really enabled for the construction of models um, that could be taken apart and put back together again, um, such as this full-sized uh, model of a human from the Aberdeen uh, University collection. And here's another Aberdeen example just demonstrating this um, dissectability of, of models. This is a, uh, an Ozu snail. Um, and I was one, once very fortunate to actually be able to handle one of the Ozu snails um, that was then in the Cambridge Zoology um, collection and took it apart and of course you know a, a scenario familiar to everybody who's ever um, tried to repair a radio I took them I took it all apart and then I put it back together again and then there were th three little pieces sort of left over and I had no idea uh, where they went not knowing much about snail anatomy to be honest I mean I was looking for a brain in there um, that, that tells you a lot about how little I know about snails um, so um, anyway, other so so it's not just dissectable, but the models were also um, brightly coloured. They were painted with several, uh, roughly a dozen layers of paints and varnishes. Um, brightly painted, um, you can see here again that sort of customary um, uh, schematic um, distinction of the the bright red and the bright blue for the veins and the arteries. And there's also um, a labeling system to facilitate students' engagement with the model. So you've got not just one labeling system um, to tell you what all those little details are. So here you can see you know muscles uh, labeled. Um, but there's also a second labeling system um, with numbers and letters that's supposed to tell you in what order to take them apart and put them back together again. So the hands of the student are then guided in this process of um, dissection. And that tells you something about the sort of the pedagogical impetus behind these models. Ozu's idea was very much to enable um, an autodidactic engagement with the body. The idea was that if a student had one of these models, you could either buy them or you could rent them on a monthly basis. Um, the idea was that you should be able to, to study um, anatomy without the help of a teacher. You should be able to simply sort of memorize all those bits and pieces, and through this act of taking them apart and putting them back together again, you were supposed to understand how those different parts of the body um, relate to one another. Um, 
of course, this choice of a new material um, not just had, had important consequences, not just for the way in which the models could be used, but also for the way in which they were made. Um, in particular, um, Ozu developed a way of uh, producing the models in series. Um, so um, using, um, for instance, molds, which you can see here on the, on the uh, bottom, um, he created um, an, a factory in his hometown in Normandy um, where people would be invited and, and there would be a you know, division of labor. Some would be um, involved in the modeling process. Some workers would be involved in painting and varnishing the models and, and putting the labels on, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, each model then was supposed to be identical to all the other models in that same, in that same series, right? Every, every model, uh, as it were, um, was uh, produced in series. Um, although, I mean, over time, there are some changes to the, to the design, which I think we, we can probably go into um, later. But um, by and large, they were supposed to be um, identical. Um, and again, I mean, going back to, to Liz's earlier point about um, the tinkering and the adaptation of, um, of other types of working practices, um, Ozu is very interested in observing um, artisanal practices in other trades. And among other things, he looked at, for instance, um, local um, bell foundries um, and uh, adapted some of their methods for producing molds. Um, and he also apparently adapted some of his presses from local cider presses being being from Normandy, um, that's what you that's what you do. Um, but I'm not going to say more more about the sort of the technical details because as a historian, what, what I'm primarily interested in is, um, as it were, the social and political lives of these models, um, the way in which they contribute um, to um, all sorts of interesting reform um, projects in the period, for instance. And I'm just going to give you a few examples. Here's a group photograph um, from the early 20th century of Ozu's uh, factory in, in Normandy, showing some of the workers. Um, and what's quite interesting about this um, this factory is that it's in itself um, a model for how to run a good factory, right? Not only does this factory produce models, it also is supposed to produce model workers. Um, so Ozu is very interested in um, providing education to his workers, for instance. They all had uh, lessons um, in, in things such as anatomy, for instance. Um, and he also uh, looked to their good conduct. So just um, to give you an example, here's an, an American physician who actually went um, to the factory in the, in the 1860s um, and observed it. And he said um, that over this community of workers, um, Dr. Ozu watches with fatherly interest and besides attending to the wants, the morals and the private life of all his employees, um, he provides them all with anatomical lessons. This last, of course, is as much in his interest as theirs since no one would undertake the precise and difficult work required without special training. All the 80 employees become experts anatomists without ever having seen a cadaver or handled a scalpel. Uh, Monsieur Ozu takes great interest in promoting marriages among the workers um, and in course of time send children to work in the factory of their beloved master. The consequence is that all the village knows anatomy. It is said that the very cows are acquainted with the structure of their own bodies. Um, so this is very much a, a sort of re reform project um, in itself. 
um, and gets taken up by model users in sometimes very explicitly uh, political ways. So the factory becomes, uh, the, 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 the um, company becomes extremely successful and you can see um, models being exported around the world. There's a franchise opening up in Japan. You can find them in classrooms in places like Sudan and Egypt. Um, there's a big um, distribution network in the United States. Uh, the Brazilian emperor and the pope buy models. Um, and, and you can still see them in many university collections today. So Aberdeen, for instance, has them. Um, Cambridge has them. The Whipple Museum is, has now got quite a few of them on display. Uh, there's a fabulous... Um, a fabulous Ozu horse um, in the Science Museum, which is not an on display at the moment, I think, but I'm very much hoping that it will be in the redeveloped medical galleries. Excellent, excellent. So, so this is, you know, come 2019, this is definitely something to look forward to. Um, so this is, um, and arguably, um, I, think, I think, you know, Ozu's marketing strategies are as innovative, in a way, as his production process and his materials. Uh, so among other things, he really um, makes use of um, the, um, the newly developed printing methods that make print in high numbers much more affordable than it used to be. And among other things, he creates spam letters. So he creates large numbers of these form letters, uh, fill in blank here, um, with, where in which he announces the latest product developments and which he then just blanket mails to schools and universities um, across the country. Um, he also very much taps into uh, political concerns of the time. His tendency is basically to say whenever there's a social problem or a political problem, there's a model that can answer to that. Um, and case in point would be the Ozu horse, for instance, um, which is a response to the French military's concern about the quality of their military horses. Um, so in the, in the mid-19th um, century, the French military actually had to import horses from abroad and, of course, were concerned that uh, in, in wartime this would no longer be uh, possible and the French would soon run out of horses, which were, you know, a very uh, key, uh, as it were, military technology of the time. You really needed your horses. Um, to be successful in, in war. So, so Ozu's response was, well, of course, you know, the thing to do is to improve the way that soldiers learn about how to handle and how to care for their horses properly. And the way to do that, of course, is with the help of models. So he produced a horse model. Um, he also went out and um, developed um, a flair for a certain level of showmanship. So he would um, actually um, deliver public lectures um, on a Sunday in Paris every week, um, which to the educated Paris sort of middle class um, would uh, become what uh, Gustave Flaubert um, and, and others attended as a sort of um, replacement for Sunday service, um, as Jules Michelet, the historian, for instance, said um, when he told people about him, his Sunday activities. He said, you know, we go to Ozu's lectures and, and they're, they're our Sunday service. Um, he also um, tapped into uh, political concerns in other parts of the world, uh, and some of the model users that bought um, his models uh, very much used them for their own reformist activities, such as, for instance, the fabulous Dr. Hollick, um, Frederick Hollick, uh, an overnight um, from, from England who went to America um, in a quest to, um, as he would put it, emancipate 
um, people from the uh, oppressive monopoly of physicians. Um, so what he did uh, with the help of Ozu models was to deliver public lectures on um, controversial things such as reproduction and sexuality, uh, but also on, on an anatomy uh, more generally. And to him, this was a way uh, to enable um, the general public um, to take more responsibility for their own bodies, um, to emancipate them, as he would put it, from the judgment and the services of, uh, of physicians. Um, not surprisingly, perhaps, um, he was put on um, trial for public obscenity uh, by uh, the good people of Philadelphia. But it was his, his, especially his female public who came to his rescue in that, um, in that, in that moment. Um, so his female audience actually started a whole campaign um, uh, to... Um, convince um, the uh, Philadelphians that uh, what, what was going on uh, was, was not obscene in the least, but rather you know, a very educational uh, and very positive um, activity. And in the end, he was actually um, acquitted. Um, and um, women were an important audience for these models um, in the 19th century. Another example um, of um, a reformer, of an activist, a political activist who used Ozu models for her purposes is Paulina Kellogg-Wright Davis, a very important um, um, women's rights campaign in the United States in the 19th century, who uh, taught herself um, anatomy and physiology and then bought an Ozu model, uh, a female Ozu model, um, like the one you can see here. Um, and she also then traveled the country educating women uh, about their bodies, about reproduction, um, in um, an attempt um, to enable women to take more control of their own bodies and to take better control of the health of their families um, in particular. Um, but the models um, traveled even, even further than this um, to Egypt, uh, among other things. Um, now, I already mentioned that Ozu's own factory in Normandy was a bit of a, a model factory in the political sense as well. Um, workers were educated to become proper anatomists in their own right. And one of the sort of more spectacular things that Ozu did was he basically had show exams of his workers. He took some of his workers to Paris um, to, have, to undergo a public examination in anatomy um, in front of audiences of medical schools. Um, so there would be um, some of both, both male and female workers being taken to Paris um, to be given a, a series of questions on anatomy and physiology by, uh, by medical professors or from, from, from the Paris Faculty of Medicine um, who uh, then supposedly displayed a knowledge of anatomy and physiology that was as good as that of the, of the medical students themselves. Um, and that, of course, was part of the advertising campaign because it showed um, that even you know, country bumpkins from a small village in Normandy could, with the help of Ozu's model, become proficient anatomists in their own, in their own right. Um, one um, particularly successful um, example, one model student, as it were, uh, was um, a young man called Boucher, who started working in the factory as a child, um, who was then educated in anatomy and physiology, and apparently uh, proved so talented uh, that he was then taken to Paris, to Ozu's shop in Paris, um, to help with the, uh, with the weekly lectures. 
And it's at that point that the, the Egypt connection comes in, and that's why we get uh, Mehmet Ali Pasha and, 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 and Antoine Claw. So Egypt in the early um, 19th century was undergoing a series of reforms. Uh, Mehmet Ali Pasha uh, had recently taken over the reins in Egypt, um, and in order to solidify his hold on power, um, he brought in experts, um, from, especially from Europe, to reform the military, to reform uh, medical education, to reform engineering, education, etc. Uh, and so, among other things, he brought a French doctor, Antoine Claude, um, to create uh, new medical schools um, for Egypt. And um, then to engage in a sort of an exchange of students. So, so the most promising Egyptian students were then sent back to Paris to study medicine there. And one of them actually stayed with Ozu in his shop in, in, his shop in Paris. Um, and it was there that um, Claude met Boucher, this young model student who had shown so much talent, um, and invited him to come back to Egypt with him to actually work as, a, as an anatomy demonstrator for the medical school there. Um, and this then, uh, this great success, uh, this move, you know, from being a child laborer in the model factory to becoming um, an anatomy lecturer in Egypt was publicized in the European media as, as proof of the success of these models and their educational powers. Um, but it was not only the European students who were highlighted um, as model students for this um, project um, but also some of the Egyptian students as well. Um, among other things, um, the, this medical reform was very concerned with creating uh, um, a well-trained group of midwives um, to make sure that um, you know, child mortality uh, would go down. Um, and um, because quite a few parents were not comfortable in the early years of these new schools of midwifery to send their own daughters to these schools. Um, what the school did to solve that recruitment problem was to actually buy female slaves and turn them into midwives. So they basically bought their students, um, which is something they should probably try today as well. Um, so, and what happened with some of these students um, again, uh, was that they, they showcased the success of these talented young women um, to, to highlight the power of models. There was one, uh, one student in particular, Fatma, um, a girl from Abyssinia, who was amongst the, the, the sort of the first generation of slaves who were trained in the, in the school, who was highlighted as um, a model of success. She herself um, was hailed in the European press as an agent of civilization um, for Egypt, someone who had really absorbed um, her training and improved the lives of mothers and children in these new midwifery um, schools. So, uh, in other words, you've got um, scholarly slaves and, uh, and also sort of peasant anatomists from Normandy um, pulling together to create this image of the model student. Um, and indeed, in the 19th century, the Ozu enterprise um, became something of, of, a, of a celebrity, which you can see, for instance, in this French textbook for American students coming to, coming to France in the, in the 19th century, which actually uses the scenario of attending one of Ozu's lectures as an opportunity to practice conversation. Um, so, you know, um, you know, what does Alexis... Um, 
assist in uh, a lesson of Dr. Ozu. Um, what does the doctor take apart piece by piece? An artificial human, etc., um, etc. Et um, Dickens comments on him, Flaubert comments on him. Um, it's really very much, he's very much a household name in the 19th century. But that should not, um, I think, um, obstruct um, our the, the more critical views that were present at the same time as well, despite Ozu's um, uh, utopian dream of anatomical autodidacticism, the idea that if it was just you and the model, you could learn everything there was to be, know, to be known about anatomy. Um, despite this, um, this ideal, many users actually found um, the process rather more complicated than that. And I leave the last word to um, Gustave Flaubert, someone who had himself attended Ozu's lectures in Paris and actually rented one of his models. Uh, at some point, who in his satiric satirical novel uh, Bouvard and Pécuchet has the two hapless protagonists uh, engaging in a spot of home dissection with the help of an Uzu model. And here's what he's got to say. When they, they were tired of one organ, they passed to another. And in this way, they successively began and abandoned the heart, stomach, ear, intestines, for the cardboard dummy bored them terribly in spite of their efforts to take an interest in it. Thank you. Well, thank you. From the sort of brutal hands-on to, to high politics and literature, this is a rather nice contrast. We have a few minutes for questions. Lunch, um, we've got plenty of time for lunch. Don't worry about that. Well, the, the explanation I got from Christophe de Gers at the, at the Alfor Museum is um, that he, he thinks they're based on a donkey. Also because some of the, in, in some of the early models, apparently the, 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 the shape of the pupils was, was wrong in the horse. Um, and, and he thinks that's maybe because they used a, a, a donkey in the early ones. Um, and, and also the size, yeah, it's about two thirds of what you'd expect from a, from a horse. Um, but I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, you don't get again. You don't. You don't get a great sort of documentation of the process. I mean, there, there you can still see um, in in Le Neubourg, uh, which Liz has also seen. There's a fantastic little um, little museum um, that actually shows uh, what remains of the factory equipment um, and some models in in process. So you can you can see. Uh, some of the uh, steps um, there, just because you've still got the materials and some of the half-finished um, pieces. Um, but uh, I haven't yet found um, any very detailed account. I mean, Ozu doesn't seem to be particularly interested in, in sort of documenting exactly how it is he arrives at his prototypes. Um, there's some indication that yes, he did he did perform dissections um, to um, in in the process of creating um, the prototypes. Uh, using some new um, embalming processes to keep keep the bodies um, sort of workable for, for longer. There's also a series of drawings um, that he did, um, but 
you know, for, for quite a few of them, we don't see it. And of course, many of them are not actually t life-sized anyway. Um, yeah, so the, so the horse is slightly smaller. Uh, some of the, the full-sized humans are, are uh, smaller at different scales. Again, you know, that, that was a way, it was, it was basically a marketing technique, you know, to reaching a wider market by creating smaller scale models that would be more affordable than the, than the life-sized ones. But then, of course, you also have the giant snail. Uh, you've got a fantastic giant ear, which is quite sculptural in a way. Um, but for instance, I mean, the, the gorilla, for instance, is life-sized, and there we know that that's actually based on um, a, a direct sort of dissection of one of the earliest specimens that was brought into into France um, in the in the later nineteenth century. Uh, can I give Jane the final question? Sure. <laughs> Mm. Well, the, I mean, the um, company itself kept going for a, a long time. Um, it was in the family until the 1920s and then taken over by a, su a successor. They did switch to plastics uh, in the 20th century, but the shop in Paris was still there uh, until just before 2000 um, in the Rue de l'École de Médecine. Um, and they also branched out into into supplying other types of teaching uh, materials. Um, so, so the the company itself um, had quite a quite a longevity um, to it. But um, basically, by the early twentieth century, you can you can see. I mean, and, and Ozu uh, died in the late nineteenth century, and by by the early twentieth century, under his um, grand nephew, um, you can see they're really under under siege from the competitors that are coming up, especially in Germany. I mean, there's a scathing report uh, by um, the, the new owner uh, in the 1920s of how basically uh, the Ozu company is is so is challenged by the inferior quality German models that are that are coming up. Um, at the at the time, uh, and I think partly it's because the competition gets more prof proficient; they they simply get better, and and also in in some cases cheaper. Um, but also there's a change in pedagogical um, ideas at the time. I mean, Liz was already talking about this in that that move among anatomists towards more simplification, and you can see that new philosophy um, coming into general education as well. Uh, so in schools, for instance, there will be education specialists by the late 19th century saying, actually, all this, this level of detail is more, does more harm than good because it doesn't tell the students what's important and what isn't important. So um, unless you really need to you know, have a, a, a comprehensive knowledge of all these anatomical details because you go into medicine, um, you're much better off with more simplified models that only show the things you really you really have to remember. Um, and instead of having having those labels, what you really need is the presence of a teacher who will sort of mediate that encounter between you and the model. Instead of this autodidactic spirit, um, there's very much the idea that what you need is simplified models and someone knowledgeable who's there and then tells you what to pay attention to and what to take away from the model. And that's where, for instance, um, some of the much more simplified plaster models come in. For instance, the Derolle company, um, also a French maker at the time, creates these quite simplified, uh, brightly colored uh, plaster models. Um, that increasingly replace um, the still relatively expensive and very, very detailed Ozu models. Especially, and that's why there's a link there mm. to, the, to the ultra simplification of, of Hicks, uh, which is where mm. we started mm -hmm. rather neatly. 
Well, thank you very much for your attention. What was a mammoth session this morning. Lunch will be in the committee rooms just around the corner and then um, at your leisure, the exhibition upstairs and then from 1.30 in the McRae Gallery, um, there'll be some fun and frolics. Um, but I just finally want to thank not only Anna, but also Liz and Ella for a really astounding, very stimulating morning. Thanks, guys.